0: Hello, this is Harriet Assam, Head of Sustainability at the BBCA, and welcome to the latest in our podcasts, this time focusing in on private capital's role in the net zero puzzle. To help me discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined by Ema Palmer, Partner, Global Head of ESG at Pantheon, Maria Caradas, Managing Director at Mayfair Equity, and Maggie Lou partner, client and strategy development from Bridges Fund Management.
1: Welcome. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Well, I think we're all in agreement that the impacts of climate change are apparent. Hazardous weather events and the human and economic costs are regularly splashed across media headlines and their impacts felt. Whilst the most recent report by the IPCC indicates that the 1.5 degrees C target is still feasible, Critical action across all sectors and levels is urgently required if we are ever going to meet it. Since the Paris Agreement was agreed and adopted in 2015, the UK has been leading in climate policy, including making the net zero target legally binding in 2019 and committing to becoming the world's first net zero aligned financial centre since this time we have seen various policy developments particularly focused on improving the quality and breadth of sustainability related information and data provided to the market supporting the development of tools and frameworks and more recently as part of this year's green finance announcements private investment was acknowledged as being critical to plugging the investment gap delivering net zero building climate resilience And supporting nature's recovery with some sources saying that the uk will require 50 to 60 billion pounds more capital investment each year by the late 2020s and 2030s for the uk's net zero ambitions to be achieved so if private capital is to fulfill its potential in supporting the government's ambitions what does the policy landscape and investment climate need to look like these are some of the topics we are hoping to unpack today. So Maggie, does Net Zero represent the growth opportunity of the 21st century?
2: Thank you, Harriet. I mean, I think it definitely does. The scale of change that you mentioned to meet our global ambitions is vast. Mm-hmm. Take the sustainable development goals. Globally, investment on the order of 3 to $5 trillion needs to be mobilized if we are to meet these goals by 2030. There's been a huge amount of progress over the last five years, but more capital is needed, and we absolutely cannot be complacent about it. Climate action and access to more renewable energy are definitely core goals you know, as part of the sustainable development um, challenges, but all not, not only that. And that's why I think it's really important that we bring people along with us on this transition. This focus on a just transition is really critical to ensure that as we decarbonize, we don't leave behind the most vulnerable communities behind. In fact, you know, they are the ones that are going to be most disproportionately affected by the climate crisis. So this really requires private capital to play a huge part. Investors are already recognizing the opportunity to invest in this transition to a more sustainable and more inclusive economy. And we can see evidence of this already from the fact that the size of the worldwide impact investing market topped the trillion-dollar mark for the first time in 2022. So this is definitely a growth opportunity of the century. It's about making companies more responsible in the way that it looks after its uh, stakeholders and the environment, but it's also about the growth opportunity from backing direct solutions to solving the social and environmental challenges globally.
3: Ima, so what are your observations on this? How are you viewing the challenge at Pantheon? We believe investing in direct climate solutions is extremely important, but it's really a twofold approach. The entire economy needs to decarbonise if we're to achieve net zero by 2050. SMEs are responsible for 60 to 70 percent of global carbon emissions, which means that all small to medium businesses in the UK, backed by private equity, need investor support to a greater or lesser extent. And SMEs are often constrained by skills and resource gaps. So investors have a really key role to play in helping to bridge this. And I would definitely say the private capital industry is in its relatively early days in terms of focus on net zero. And this is partially driven by lack of data. By contrast, if you look at the public markets, public companies have been reporting on climate for 20 years. CDP, which is the Carbon Disclosure Project, launched its first climate change disclosure request in 2003. But private markets are catching up quickly, and this is really due to investor and regulatory pressure and initiatives supporting the development of best practice. But it's really important to target efforts to create value within the private market portfolio, Uh, And equally important to recognize the opportunity for all companies in this transition to a greater or lesser extent. So, for example, shifting to practices that use less energy and that generate less waste can help to reduce operating costs. And in practice, there's typically a very small number of companies in a portfolio that will be responsible for, say, 70 to 80 percent of the portfolio's overall emissions. So, it's really important to target efforts and help prepare these companies for t- decarbonisation and the associated regulation whilst keeping costs in mind. It's quite clear that private capital
0: is rising to the challenge, but Maria, I know that you always talk to me about keeping things. Practical, great to get your your insights on this and the need to make it practical to enable that transition. Emma's
1: right. When we're looking at decarbonisation, we've got to be looking at what are the real practical things that we can do within the portfolio company to help them. I guess if we if we take a step back, we look at you know the, the government's ambitions to become net zero by twenty fifty. It's how do we distil that high level ambition into the real business end of the SME market. So what do we have to do and what do we have to deliver as individual companies in order to play our part in in that overall net zero? And I think there are a couple of things that we, we need to get clarity in terms of a lot of people don't understand what's the difference between net zero and carbon neutrality, for example, and they think they might be on the path. But really, they're not it's as basic as that. But I think if we going back to Ema's point about being able to operationalize a lot of this, being able to sit in a room with your board of directors and say to them, OK, there are three things here that you can do to help decarbonize. You can change your product. You can look at the energy efficiency of your operations, maybe look at your fleet and how your product is distributed. Those are real things that can have an impact and they're things that the companies can understand. Where we get a little bit lost is that we we forget that small companies, they're on high growth strategies generally, and they are laser focused on growing that top line they generally don't have people in the organisation that are sustainability or ESG experts. And so a lot of this, even just the terminology, is quite difficult for them to understand. So having the ability to take the high-level policies and being able to turn those into some real practical steps that they can do to start to make a difference, I think is really, really important in order to bring everybody on that journey together.
0: So I think what stands out to me from all that conversation is the need for practical tools and guidance relevant for private capital and the need to consider the net zero challenge not just through a carbon lens. To move us on to why, why is this relevant to private capital? Can private capital plug that investment gap? Do we have sufficient access to capital? What are we seeing in other geographies? Emma, you had some really interesting observations here. Are you able to kick us off here and shine some light on why net zero is so relevant to private capital?
3: There is a really a clear need for a huge volume of investment over a long-term time horizon. So harnessing private capital is critical. And I would say there's been some positive headwinds um, in that regard. So firstly, the scale of private capital has been growing faster than public markets in recent years with Ernst & Young estimating $22 trillion in private market capital at the end of 2022. And this is expected to continue to rise. Also, fundraising in private markets has been strong over a number of years. And in key sectors like infrastructure, fundraising has been resilient even over the last year. If we look ahead, there's an estimated $11 trillion that will be passed to younger generations by 2030 given rapidly changing demographics. And this great wealth transfer should also disproportionately benefit private capital and sustainable and impact investing. Secondly, investors are already recognising the key role that private markets have to play. The greatest proportion of impact investing assets continues to be allocated through private equity, actually. So that's around 26%. And nearly 7 in 10 investors that allocate some capital to impact are allocating it through private equity. And thirdly, what we're really seeing is climate being the most in-demand thematic for impact-related investments. And according to a recent GIN survey, almost all investors target at least one SDG and almost 75% target SDG 13, which is climate action. And in private equity, we've seen a trend recently of generalist impact managers pivoting towards more climate-focused funds and even some mainstream managers launching dedicated impact and even climate-focused platform extensions. In venture, climate tech is really emerging as a nascent but fast-growing field, with around $30 billion allocated to climate-focused startups in 2021. We're also seeing, although this is only a very small number, but we're really seeing the emergence of these very targeted, focused funds on things like nature-based solutions. But I would say overall climate is definitely the dominant theme. But like any sector in vogue, the focus has to be on discipline in terms of asset selection, underwriting and pricing. And while these trends are generally very helpful, there is still a significant amount of private capital that needs to be mobilised to plug this gap, and we really shouldn't lose sight of this.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I agree with that, Ymir. We've talked about the scale of the challenge. So just imagine the amounts of, you know, trillions of dollars that would be needed. And public sector budgets are really under pressure. There's only so much that philanthropy can um, go towards addressing the challenge. And I think, in the last few years, seeing the entrance of private capital to this space has been uh, really encouraging. Um, and ultimately, very suitable as well. To this question of whether private capital is, is well-suited, absolutely yes. You know, these challenges that we face are have been many years in the making. The solutions to them will also require long-term commitment and horizon. And so private capital, with its long-term um, outlook, more hands-on management approach that we typically are seeing being applied, and the expertise to support the growth of SMEs, for example, to address these issues is going to be, hopefully the right role that private capital could be playing. SMEs can grow, and as they grow in line, hopefully what they're doing is also amplifying the positive impact they're doing. And they can crucially work across border, um, which often public sector, you might not always um, be able to ensure that sort of cross-border and international focus. Over the last 20 years at Bridges, um, we've definitely seen the sea change in how institutional investors approach these sectors. There continues to be this moral imperative, I think, to be supportive. But what's been really great to see is that there's this increasing understanding by both LPs and GPs. Um, you know that EMO kind of picked out that these represent really compelling investment opportunities. These are great macro trends for investors to be investing in. They can drive really strong financial returns as well as the positive impacts. And to the point about the the young people who are actually going to be looking after our global environment going forward, we're also very, very pleased to see more interest in private capital from the D.C. pension schemes. These are typically, you know, they have young savers who... I really believe they should have access to long-term investments, which they historically might not have had. When it comes to thinking about the, the horizon for these young savers, they want to be making sure that their capital is going to bring, you know, through a more sustainable and inclusive world that they ultimately will be inheriting from us. So it's been great for us to see the recent announcement of the Mansion House Compact. And it's a great opportunity, I think, for us as BVCA as an industry to collaborate very closely with these DC pension schemes um, and ultimately make sure that the private market investment and the capital really does flow and go going hopefully towards including these very needed sectors as well.
0: Brilliant. Maria, great to get your observations. How will net zero affect standard businesses and and the way it works
2: we all
1: like to talk about the new kind of businesses and the you know the, the businesses that are going to help us um, with, a, with the climate um, problems that we have but I think we shouldn't forget those very very good brownfield businesses that we that we currently all own and, and currently all rely on for our daily products and services I think we have an obligation as well as deploying capital to all to these new types of business and products and services to look at how we can make the brownfield businesses that we all rely on much more sustainable going forward. We all get wrapped up in the let's deploy capital elsewhere, but I think there's a real argument for deploying that capital to good, financially sound businesses and just helping them to decarbonise. So I spend a lot of time with businesses really just helping them to understand, Okay, well, you have this really great product or this really great service but how can we make it more sustainable for the next 50 years? What should we do? How can we change operations? How can we look at the way you go to market? And I think it's really important that we all play a part in that as well. Where I feel a little bit nervous is when you're talking to the banking industry, for example, and they're they're saying, well, we're, we're not going to deploy capital to these kind of businesses anymore because they're, they're not as good as the businesses we'd like them to be. But my fear is that actually people that will plug the gap are probably less focused on sustainability and decarbonisation. And I think that's worse. If you take the oil and gas industry, for an example, it'll be incredibly difficult to help them to decarbonise. But I think we have an obligation to do that rather than cutting funding and leaving them to it. Because the kind of investors that will come in and fund are likely to, to not be the kind of investors that are thinking in terms of sustainability. So I think it's great to see new new style companies coming in. It's great to support them with you know, where we want to be in the world, but let's not forget the nuts and bolt businesses that we've got. And also, you know, when we are looking to encourage people to set up businesses, the entrepreneurs, being able to help them set up a business, but in a more sustainable way, is also, I think, very, very worthwhile.
0: What we can conclude from all that is that this transition represents a huge opportunity for private capital, but we need to help all businesses, all sectors, move on this transition and decarbonise. We can't leave anyone behind. Where I'd like to take the conversation now is to have a discussion and and highlight what private capital is already doing in this space and how it is already helping the businesses it invests in to decarbonise and invest in the technological solutions of tomorrow.
2: Maggie. I'm very happy to talk a little bit about how Bridges is, you know, already participating in this. As you may know, everything we do at Bridges is around accelerating the transition to a more sustainable and more inclusive economy, and you know, it goes right from the manager level and our operations, but down to, I guess, crucially, the kinds of businesses that we back. Um, so we've set some pretty ambitious net zero targets for ourselves and for our companies. So last year, uh, our own operations became carbon neutral. And by the end of this year, uh, 100% of our investment will have set science-based targets or otherwise aligning to the one and a half degree scenario. And by 2040, all of our operations as well as portfolios will have achieved net zero carbon emissions or better. So now down to some examples, um, and I absolutely agree with Maria that, you know, transitioning needs to be a part of uh, the overall solution. The part that we tend to focus on our investments are businesses that are hopefully are running their operations, looking after its people in a sustainable and inclusive way, but that they have that additional core impact that they're looking to drive to, to solving the challenge. So some examples I it could be quite interesting to pull out that might be more related on the environmental side would range from. Um, We've got a portfolio company in the north of England called GEV, and they are very interestingly participating, I think, in the growth opportunity that's represented by the wind industry. Um, What they do is they maintain and repair the wind turbine blades that get battered by, you know, lightning strikes, uh, bird strikes, and just general wear and tear to make sure that the wind turbines and the wind farms generally are being as productive as possible in generating clean energy to the grid. Energy generation is clearly a big part of the solution, but building uh, the built environment is also a really critical part of the puzzle as well. Um, and so this is where it's been interesting to think about it from a building's perspective. In our real estate activity, we've done quite a lot in the net zero carbon logistics side, where you know we see the real uh, financial investment opportunity, as well as from an environmental standpoint, to build these assets that are net zero carbon in operations which is of interest ultimately for the corporate occupiers that we're looking to let the buildings to. And then ultimately you also begin to see institutional investors very focused on acquiring high quality future approved assets that will meet that net zero ambition going forward. And then staying on buildings, there's also the opportunity to work with uh, real estate owners, um, you know, of these commercial assets. So Evora is a recent investment we've backed, which provides consulting and software solutions to the largest real estate asset managers. Um, And they have had a really strong record of helping them track and improve uh, the carbon footprint of those assets. And ultimately, talking about the just transition, I think Agility Eco is a really great opportunity which marries the need to address the net zero carbon transition, as well as making sure that low-income households in this country have access to the kind of energy efficiency products and services, so that not only are they, um, we're helping them decarbonize the housing stock, but also, you know, at the same time, generating quite a lot of utility bill savings for those households just a flavor of some of the investment opportunities where if we are looking to drive solutions we necessarily are looking at these really compelling macro trends and therefore you know you have that really nice marrying of solving a challenge but at the same time you're hitting on a great investment opportunity so hopefully financial returns and impact will go hand in hand that's fantastic
0: Ima, I know Pantheon have generated their own ESG
3: scores cards. Can you expand on this a little for us? Yes, we've actually developed two scorecards. So the first is Pantheon's Idea Scorecard, which is specifically assessing impact and sustainably themed funds and opportunities. Because investing in these small venture and growth managers and helping them scale is critical to scaling climate solutions. And given the size and risk profile of these funds and often the the lack of a track record it's difficult for institutional investors to access these directly and this is where pooled solutions can really help. Um, The second is our ESG scorecards where we look at climate and ESG maturity across all of our managers and these ESG scorecards include a range of questions across different themes including ESG integration, reputation, climate and biodiversity. And so far, we've rated around 200 managers across different asset classes, private equity, private debt and infrastructure, and across Europe, the US and Asia. And what we're seeing is a really strong commitment to net zero across infrastructure, with more than 50% of our infrastructure managers committed to net zero, and a further 16% working towards committing. PE is a private equity is definitely less far down the road with less than 10% committed to net zero however, but it is notable that almost 30% of managers we surveyed are working towards this. So clearly the private equity industry is more emerging when it comes to net zero commitments compared to other asset classes, but there's clearly a strong momentum towards making these commitments. And also we're very focused on how these long-term commitments to net zero translate into targets and actions with tangible outcomes that can reduce risk and deliver value. And we're pleased to say that almost 20% of private equity managers have an emissions reduction target, for example, a science-based target, which covers their portfolio companies. We're really keen to share all of this data and actually we're publishing the results on Pantheon's website next month of this very broad survey across the industry.
0: I look forward to having a read of that, Ema. Maria, I'm going to use those words, materiality, engagement. I know these are key words that you often bring up in conversation when we're having a chat. It would be great if you can kind of build on that a little and how you're working with Mayfair's portfolio companies and board esg and pick out the bits that are relevant to them the first
1: thing to to mention is that quite often when we bring a portfolio company into the portfolio the first time it has very little if any esg credentials it generally doesn't have people um, that have any idea about what to do and so really the first thing that we do once we've once we've brought them in and we have an esg due diligence pathway is we ask for them to start looking at their esg materiality so that rather than bombard them with 20 30 40 different esg metrics we focus you know on just two or three things that are going to make a difference to them where they can see implications of what they're doing and where they can measure we work with them on that we get the board involved so we have board level insight and we start to put into place some KPIs. Once we've done the materiality study, quite often for the larger portfolio companies, we will ask or at least encourage them to, to put in place an internal ESG committee. And that ESG committee then drives the ESGE programme for the business. And What we tend to find is that if we can really encourage them and support them to have a go and to get started, once they have started it's very difficult for them to stop it you know it takes on a life of its own people feel supported to have a go even if they don't perhaps get it right and for example I've asked them to put in place some KPIs and I'll say well we'll see what happens we don't know whether this is the right KPI but we think it probably is let's see what happens but be prepared to change it in a year's time or two years time if it doesn't look like it's working I think also because regulation is all over the place at the moment it's quite difficult to get them to focus on one particular thing, one particular methodology. So what we try and do is say we'll choose the methodology that works best for your business and for the data you have at the moment and then once we've got standardisation across the board which hopefully is coming it's going to be much easier for them to then move across. I think where we will struggle is where they really don't see the benefit. It it looks like a massive cost and a massive burden with limited benefit. So, you know, we've learned over the years from not going down that route and by actually saying, right, we're only going to focus on these two things. These are really relevant to you. You understand why they're relevant. Let's see whether we can make a difference, whether that's decarbonising or whether that's, you know, looking at waste reduction or energy efficiency or even down to the more soft people skills where we can see some real benefit and impact to changing the way that they perhaps recruit. So yes, down at the weeds level, it's quite different. And it is about supporting and encouraging them to at least start the journey and to have a go.
0: I love hearing about what we're doing down at those practical levels and also hearing about what what investment opportunities we're investing into want to take this back up a level a little and talk about the practical tools and guidance that's emerging to help private capital on board these initiatives. And, and I know, Ema, you are actively involved in an initiative, the ICI, which would be great to hear a little bit more about.
3: Yes, ICI is a private markets climate initiative, and we believe this has really been um, hugely important in terms of driving momentum within the private equity industry towards net zero commitments, towards target setting, towards data gathering and disclosure as well. And it's had a hugely positive impact. Um, ICI now counts for over 250 members, representing $4.1 trillion of assets under management. And ICI members share a commitment to reduce the carbon emissions of private equity backed companies but it's very much focused on practical tools and resources that are developed by members for members. In 2022, we worked with Gears Across ICI to develop a guide for for these members on GHG accounting and reporting in private equity. And this was a hugely important guide because since then, there was no consistent approach to how we actually attribute emissions to investors. So when you think about the emissions in the underlying portfolio companies and you think about the different financing that are invested in those companies, how are you actually attributing those to the debt and equity investors? So that was a really important step forward. Um, And since then, ICI have published other guides, such as setting science-based emission reduction targets, where for the first time private equity could set a climate reduction target verified by a third party, which is the the science-based target initiative. And these are climate reduction targets for the underlying portfolio. And just last week, ICI launched a private market decarbonisation roadmap. This doesn't require firms to have a net zero commitment, but it's accessible to all firms and enables private markets across the board to disclose decarbonisation progress of those underlying companies consistently consistently across different sectors and asset classes. These guides have really come out in the last sort of one to two years, which I think really shows the huge gap that there had been to date in terms of standardization, in terms of consistency across the market, and the huge amount of progress that's been made. And the BBCA have obviously been hugely supportive of ICI and we were also delighted to collaborate on the TCFD guide to support UK managers respond to what is now a regulatory reporting obligation for many.
1: Brilliant.
0: We've looked at the challenges. We've spoken about the access to capital and the relevance to private capital, and also how private capital is already working with their portfolio companies and investing in these solutions of tomorrow. But given it's COP28 at the end of the month, I wanted to take the conversation back up a level again and it'd be great to get some of your thoughts on what the policy and investment landscape needs to look like to unlock this opportunity further for private capital. So I was going to ask you all, if you had three wishes, what would you want them to be?
1: Maria? Only three. (laughs) If I had three wishes, the first one would be for greater clarity I think we've had various documents released from the government over the last 12 to 24 months setting out their sort of high-level overview and setting out their commitments to things such as net zero. But I think the bit that's missing for me is, OK, well, high-level policy is great, but what does that actually mean? So, for example, if we, if we were to take the UK's green finance and, and energy paper, it's all very well having a high-level vision but for the private capital world to be able to deploy capital to areas of energy investment, we need to really understand what that infrastructure is going to look like. You know, what, it, what is the grid system going to look like? Are we going to be looking at um, solar or wind or hydrogen or nuclear so that we can actually deploy capital where it's going to be? be of the most benefit that to me still not very clear and then if, of course you know the the one that we talk a lot about is standardization I think the UK recently made a commitment to adopt ISSB a- alongside the SDR so as soon as that comes into force and we can all start working towards the same set of standards I think that would be hugely helpful not least because it will enable all of us to talk the same language, to work with portfolio companies in the same way, to be able to use the same sets of external advisors and to all be pulling in the same direction. I think they are my main wishes, there's probably sort of two and a half wishes there, which is that real standardisation. what are your three wishes? If, if you can fit them into three. <laughs> Number one would
3: ideally be a UK equivalent of the US IRA to, to really help to subsidise green industries and innovations that take place within the UK. That would be incredibly powerful. Completely agree with Maria. I mean, for investors, we really need standardisation and particularly around um, product classification to support better and more targeted allocation of capital. Actually, the proposed sustainable labels under the UK's SDR have been a really important step forward, I think, and really helping to clarify the difference between impact, sustainable and transitioning. And also, thirdly, I think improving the integrity of carbon markets to encourage investments really at the grassroots, to excuse the euphemism, so in nature-based solutions. And that's been successful in other jurisdictions such as Australia. So I think that would be a great step forward.
2: I think we're getting a lot of consistency here in our responses. I think there's definitely no doubt that level of more transparency and standardization are critical. And it's great to hear about the ICI initiative and how that's actually blossoming into even more. This initiative from the private investment community to self-regulate and, you know, self-standardize to make life easier for our LPs. Because ultimately, we need to get impact and sustainability uh, to where we are with financial performance, how we understand that in a very uniform and standardized way, so that LPs ultimately can judge a GP's performance on a a very uniform basis, and that will lend itself to minimize the risk of greenwashing for investors. And only with that, I think, can there be the investor kind of comfort to keep deploying the capital in the market. And the other side of that is that uh, global environment, Um, and we absolutely need the UK to maintain its aspiration to be a global leader in this space, Harriet, you opened our session here by saying, you know, the UK has set its target to be the first net zero aligned financial centre. So let's not lose sight of that. We absolutely need the regulatory environment to withstand the political cycles. That commitment needs to be really firm so that investors have the uh, confidence to make sure that capital continues to flow in these much needed areas. And this is going to be really important as we look to you know 2030 and beyond because the solutions that we need need to happen now and really, really quickly. And just a final plug, I suppose, for my third wish is um, as we look to COP28, I think we genuinely need to make sure that we continue to focus on that. And I think that point about not only focusing on the renewable energy transition, but also the nature-based solutions coming in, and also doing it in a way that is going to ensure that transition is just. So working closely with the global south, looking at how nature-based solutions could not only help the climate agenda, but also look after those more vulnerable uh, communities as well.
0: Thanks Maggie, I think that's brilliant and it's a great way to end our conversation today, bringing in the links into nature and nature-based solutions and and that just transition approach and we look forward to hearing how the UK builds on the outcomes of COP28 at the end of this month. So thank you everyone for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. We look forward to engaging with you in the next podcast in our series. If you want to read or hear any more about what we've spoken about today, please refer to our web pages.